Welcome to Revealing Jesus with Christina Pereira. Are you hungry to hear more about our beautiful Savior Jesus? Well, the Bible declares that grace and peace are multiplied to us in the knowledge of Jesus. Join me for revelatory teaching, interviews with leaders in the body of Christ, and testimonies of God's goodness in your life. Thanks for joining the conversation to reveal more of Jesus to a hurting world today. So either one, God does not have the power to do anything about my situation. And so what's the point of praying to someone who's not able to do anything about my situation? Mm -hmm. Or two, I am somehow disqualified from being a recipient of God's power and of God's mm -hmm. favor and God's goodness, right? Those are really two yeah. big takeaways from one answer prayer. So when we look at prayer, and this is difficult for us to come to terms with, but we're talking about something that is so powerful that God has to withhold the right uh, to answer prayers the way we think they should be answered because it's so powerful. But before we get started, I want to give a quick shout out to our Christina Prayer Ministry sponsors who help support the mission to unite the body of Christ and fulfill the Great Commission with love. A big shout out to Gopher Ministries who provides all of our equipment for our gospel events. Davis Financial Services who does all of our financial accounting. Harvest Family Network through which I am licensed and ordained and life-changing productions who helps put together evangelistic events to reach our city for Jesus. If you or your organization are interested in becoming a CPM sponsor, you can find out more information on our website at christinaperera.org. Do you have a loved one special occasion coming up and don't know what to get them? Well, now you can sponsor an episode of Revealing Jesus in their name. And you can give them a special dedication message read on air. It makes a great gift. To find out more information, just go to christinaperera.org slash podcast. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Revealing Jesus with Christina Pereira. I am your host, Christina, and I'm so excited to have you with me here today. I hope and I pray that you are doing well right where you are and enjoying the continuously flowing grace pouring from our beautiful Savior and Father in heaven. I've got a great show for you today. I have an amazing leader in the body of Christ with me. He is a real Christian. He is a lover of Jesus. He is the co-founder of Sons and Daughters, and he is the author of the new book, Words with God, Trading Boring Empty Prayer for Real Connection. Please help me welcome Addison Brevere. Addison, welcome to the podcast. Christina, thanks for having me. It's so good to be here. Oh, thank you so much for being here with me today. Well, I was excited when I finally figured out I was talking to one of John and Lisa Brevere's four boys. How amazing. They're pretty amazing. I'm glad to be their son and honored to be their son. Oh, I love that so much. You know, they had such wonderful things to say and I love that family legacy that they're raising up their sons to now carry this beautiful torch. And you've started to do that with co-founding Sons and Daughters. How amazing. Thank you. Yeah. And I'm a father, too, of four kids. Wow. So it's, yeah, we just keep it coming. And it's been exciting seeing my kids now get involved in ways that are appropriate and specific to their season. I've got two 
that are right there in those teenage years. One is 12 and she basically acts like she's 15, 16 maturity wise. And then I have a 13 year old son who's an incredible young man. They're only 17 months apart, so they're real close. And then I've got two younger kids a little further back. Wow. That's amazing. I love that so much. I was going to ask you to share something personal, but four kids, that's pretty impressive. Four no more though. Four no more. Yeah, we do (laughs) feel like our season of having kids has come to a close and now we have our hands full with raising them, which is an adventure in itself. And so, yeah, that's what we're in the throes of right now. Yeah, we love that so much. I don't know if we're going to be one and done. We have one, but <laughs> okay. I don't know. I don't know. I feel like I've gotten many prophetic words how adoption is in our future. So I don't know. Honey, if you're listening okay. to this, I know that's news to you. So. <laughs> wow. Well, there we go. That sounds like a great conversation in the near future. <laughs> yeah, he already knows. I'm just teasing. So since this is revealing Jesus, I have to ask how you met our beautiful Savior, Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. So. Growing up in a house where so much of my life was about the person of Jesus and what it means to follow Jesus, it was very much a part of my experience from the very beginning. And I don't really remember an initial experience when I was young, but I do from my earliest memories, I remember a closeness. I remember a sensitivity to the spirit of God, and that would unfold in different ways in my life. But then as I went through my early teenage years, there was a lot of pressure, not so much internal pressure within the family, but external pressure. I felt uh, the typical pressure, I think a lot of pastors or preachers, kids or ministers, kids feel in that season of disorientation where we're trying to figure out what it is to be ourselves, what it is to dislocate in some senses from a sense of identity that's purely tied to who our parents are. And so in that season, I never abandoned the idea of God, but I definitely abandoned the idea of religion that not so much my parents perpetuated and formed us in, but it was very much a part of the culture that I spent a lot of my formative years in, younger Mm -hmm. years in. But then I never like full on rebelled or anything like that, but I, I lost interest And so much of what church stood for during that season, I just saw a lot of hypocrisy that I was not a fan of, but I got to be honest Mm -hmm. with you, my parents and their faithfulness and their humility was something, and this is good for you parents to hear. It was something that I couldn't unsee. It was something that I couldn't deny. And Mm -hmm. the idea of training up children in the way they should go, so much of that is how we model humility and model safety, safety with God, safety in life, through the ups and downs of life, all of that, and invite our kids into that journey, not try to hide them from that. There's appropriate ways to bring them into that. (laughs) So that was something that for me was an anchor through a lot of my journeying in those teenage years. And then between my junior and senior year of high school, I had a radical experience at a youth conference, believe it or not, that a girl that I was interested in brought me to. And my dad was actually speaking at this conference. So it's just funny how that all came together. I didn't want to go, but this girl who I was interested wanted to go. And so she convinced me to go and God ended up marking my life that night. And I would say that was when I encountered the person of Jesus as an adult Mm. for the first time in a way that shifted and transformed my journey. That's beautiful. I love that. 
You know, Addison, you would not believe how many testimonies there are out there of guys getting saved because a girl invited them. <laughs> it's hey, crazy. Listen, I, I'm telling you, missionary dating, flirting to convert, whatever you want to call it, like, it's a thing. Now, you got to be careful, right? Like, there's a lot of minefields there. There's no yeah. doubt about it. Yeah. But my dad led my mom to the Lord on their first date. Wow. And I led my wife to the Lord. So it's like, I saw her and I was like, I want to get to know you. So you need to get to know Jesus. And it was within one week, it was wild. She was headed to Texas State University, changed direction, went a totally different direction. And her life was transformed and all these different things. We ended up getting married a couple of years after that. So when it comes to how God forms us, you really can't put it in a box. God has ways Mm of reaching out. And doing what he does. And of course, the important thing is to be sensitive to the spirit and not believe that you're God, mm-hmm. God over the process or God over the person. Just be sensitive to the spirit. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think for all of us out there who have real relationships with Jesus, we know that he is the one who woos and he brings us into that relentless kindness that he bestows on each of us. And I think. We have to make room for God to do that in somebody else's life by using us. Absolutely. And I think the key, or we get it mixed up sometimes, and I alluded to this earlier, but the key is that we're not God mm-hmm. and we can't be God in someone's life. And if we position ourselves as God in someone's life, that's where things really start to break down. Our, our responsibility is to be a reflection uh, the goodness and the faithfulness and the holiness and the love, all these attributes of God that we're called to grow into and discover in the presence and person of Jesus, we're called to reflect those, not generate those in our own strength or in our own power. Amen. Amen. I'm so thankful we don't have to generate those in our own strength. Oh, my mercy. <laughs> I'd have no hope. I'd have no hope. And none have, of us would. No. We're not. I mean, what God has for us is so far beyond. Yeah. our ability to grasp. And that's why the only way to receive it is to be grasped by it. We mm-hmm. don't get to be the ones in control. Yeah, We get to be the ones who surrender and say, God, my best construct, whether that's religious or relational, whatever it is, my best construct is only offers a place for you to stoop down and stoop into, to elevate me into more deeper, more personal, more intimate forms of relationship and understanding. It's a springboard. It's a launching pad. It's not the end goal. Yeah. I love that so much. There's such power in surrender. People often want to know how do they become great? But the truth is that we don't become great by exalting ourselves. We become great by surrendering, just like you said, and allowing God to just stoop down and come into those places, even those places of deep weakness. Oh, Lord, thank you. Oh, good. Well, and I mean... We're talking about this idea of stooping. If you look at what grace means, grace literally means to stoop. Yeah. It means to descend and not descend for the purpose of just remaining in that place of descent. It stoops for the sake of elevation, for the sake of strengthening, for the sake of empowerment. And if you look at what James writes in James 4 and Peter and 1 Peter 5, they're both quoting a proverb, but they say, God gives grace to the humble. So he stoops down and reaches out and lifts up the humble and he opposes the proud. And this idea here is that God 
what he does, what he gives is he gives his very self, like his very self, his spirit to the humble. And that is how he elevates us, his spirit and the intermingling with ours, how he elevates us. And so ways of living and to ways of understanding ourselves, others, this world that change everything about our lives and about what is possible and what isn't possible. Mm, I love that so much. I just love who Jesus is. I love who God is. It's so funny to me sometimes, like, I just thank him for being who he is. You know, he could have been anything, but he is love. He could have demanded from us and he would have had every right to as our creator. But he doesn't. He stoops down and he comes up under and he supplies. It just boggles my mind with this goodness. I'm sorry. I'm just getting lost in Jesus over here. No, and I think that's why, particularly if you look at the Psalms, there's this constant invitation to approach God and approach the reality of God and how God interacts with our lives. Approach God from a place of thanksgiving, from a place of gratitude. Yeah. Because that's not a religious duty. What it is, is it just properly orients us back into the goodness and the faithfulness of God, because it's easy. Like life is broken. Life is messy. We live in a, a broken world where broken people break things. Mm -hmm. And it actually confuse us on multiple levels, on multiple fronts. And going back to this place of thankfulness, gratitude, it's a form of spiritual warfare. And it's a spiritual warfare that isn't frantic in action. It's actually a holy rest. It's a return to the goodness and the love and faithfulness. The way the psalmist would describe it is the steadfastness, the steadfast love of God and how that, at the end of the day, we can rest in that because that will have the final say over whatever situation we're facing. Amen. Amen. It will, it will have the final say, you know, and I have loved reading through your book, Words with God, and I thought it was so beautiful. You and I are both elder millennials, and we're called to this generation of children who've grown up. And just like you had mentioned in your testimony earlier, you saw a lot of hypocrisy and a lot of things in the church that really turned you off. And you kind of went through this wrestle of developing your own real and authentic faith with Jesus, this real living, loving relationship with Jesus. And I thought about the implications of that for this generation, and it's so powerful. But you begin to share some of the testimonies that you've received from some of your readers and other generations, so like the boomer generation or even the greatest generation. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So in the book, Words with God, the idea of trading boring empty prayer for real connection, one of the fundamental shifts that I'm going after is that prayer is not this formula to solve. It's this experience to share. <laughs> and prayer is less something that we quote unquote do and more an outflow of who we are. <laughs> so if you look at what Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5 and Romans 12 and Ephesians 6, this idea of praying constantly. When you're infected, I'm going to use the word infected because I think it's a good word. When you're infected by religiosity and a religious spirit, when you read statements like that, and this is very much the case for me, and this is another holy chore, another holy mm. bore, another chance for me to feel guilt and shame around the fact that I'm not enough, that I don't, I don't do enough, that I don't do the right things. I don't even know the right things to do. I get this thing wrong. Of course, prayer isn't working for me. 
because I don't know the right things to do. I don't know the right inputs. So no wonder I'm not getting the right outputs. Mm, and I see. And what, yeah. And so what I'm going after with this book is a fundamental shift to our idea of prayer. Because if what Paul says is true, if we're supposed to pray without ceasing, then what that means is that our lives are supposed to be one mighty integrated prayer. And what that means for us is that prayer has to be more about awareness, attentiveness, hearing, and less about speaking. And yet so much of us, when we think of prayer, we think about what it is to pray, we put all of the action, all the responsibility on ourselves rather than viewing prayer as a way of living that surrenders ourselves through this conversation that is an ongoing conversation that God is inviting us into that involves every part of our lives. And so what I'm hearing from people, book's been out now for about a month and a half, and I'm hearing from people who are like, I've been following Jesus for 40 years, 50 years, 60 years. One gentleman who's in his 80s messaged me and he said, I can only imagine what my life would have been like if I would have read this book 40 years ago. And I'm getting messages like this one lady's navigating stage three cancer right now. Wow. She messaged me and she just said, she said, Addison, like I've been following Jesus my whole life. And she's like, I've never felt the connectedness and the closeness that you lay out in this book. And she's like, and since we're reading this, I am experiencing the presence of God. And I'm realizing just how invested God wants to be in the everyday moments of my life, the parts of my life that I was like, okay, I've prayed and now I'm move, I've said amen and I'm moving on to whatever's next. I did my quote unquote God time and now I'm moving into whatever work I need to do or going to wherever I need to go, whatever it is. And she's like, your idea of how this all comes together in our lives. She's like, this is like, you know, this is what I've been looking for. This is what I've been longing for. And I've you know, never been able to articulate it or experience it. And so for me, ultimately, like I believe that we were designed for the presence of God to experience the presence of God. Mm-hmm. And the, so the accuser, the enemy of our souls wants to do everything in his power to separate us from the reality of God's presence. Mm-hmm. And there's so many people, and I mentioned this in the first movement of the book. So the book has three movements. The first movement is the canyon. And it's that place of prayer that we all go to where we're like, God, am I just having words with myself? Like, am I actually having words with you? There may be an echo or there may be a sound, but how do I know that's not an echo of my own thoughts, my own words? Where are you? I feel like I'm yelling in the darkness or whispering in the darkness. And I talk about the role of the canyon and why the canyon is an essential part of our journey of formation, because it's in the canyon where we have to let go of a transactional view of prayer and a transactional view of God so we can rediscover the relational facets of who God is and how he engages with us in our pain and our perceived separation. And one of the reasons why prayer so often leads us into silence, Christina, is because so many of us, because of how we've been raised, because of the systems that were raised then, we look for God's voice in the tone and the tenor of the accuser's voice. So we expect God to sound like the accuser. And God brings us into silence so we can unlearn the voice of the accuser. And we can start to recognize that both in silence and in sound, God wants to have words with us. 
He does. You know, in my personal experience is very, very, very different. I grew up in a Baptist church, but I thank God every day that I had a Sunday school teacher who said to me, you can talk to God. And, oh, thank you, Jesus, my little childlike faith. I just believed that he would talk back. Of course he would talk back because we talk back, right? And, Mm -hmm. you know, and his voice was always so tender and kind. It was always the opposite of everything else I heard around me. It was so encouraging. It was so uplifting. It was bringing me into places that I knew I had no business being. And that's one of the ways we can recognize the voice of God as opposed to the voice of the accuser, because the accuser brings us down. The accuser loves to make us look at ourselves, but the Holy Spirit always reverts our eyes back to Jesus. And so it's imperative that we learn to distinguish between the two. Absolutely. Like if you look at the moment in Jesus' journey where the Father speaks belovedness over the Son, he says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then the Spirit of God leads the Son into the wilderness where what was spoken over him by the Father will be tested by the accuser. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, the first thing that the accuser says to Jesus is, if you're really the Son of God, yeah. Prove it. And that's what the accuser does. The accuser will come in and go, if you're really this, do it, do this, do that. Leading us into this place of frantic inaction, trying to prove and validate something that we're incapable of proving and validating because mm-hmm. it reaches beyond our ability to do. It reaches only into our ability to receive. <laughs> and so... But the accuser wants us to believe that we are the God of our salvation, that we are the Lord of our deliverance. And that's just not how this works in any sense. Otherwise, we would be God over our situation. And if you look at the way we've understood prayer, we very much, largely, and I know there are exceptions, but largely, we make prayer about who we are, what we do, our qualifications, our merits, our knowledge, our wisdom, rather than viewing prayer as the place, like I love how the writer of Hebrews describes it in Hebrews 4, saying that the word of God searches, it divides between bone and marrow, soul and spirit. Like there's nothing hidden. There's nothing unknown. Like God knows us inside and out. And because of this, we can approach the throne of grace boldly, or we find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. But the accuser wants to tell us, say, actually, you can't approach God in your messiness. You better get your stuff together. And once you get your stuff together, then you can go to God. Then you can be drawn into God's presence. But God thing, actually, the only place where you can make north and south heads and tails of your mess is in the safety and the clarity and the purity of my love for you, of my mercy, which has a lot to do with what has been. And my grace, which has a lot to do with what will be, mercy is in a sense, like, if you really understand what mercy is, it looks back at what has been. And grace looks forward at what will be. And we are caught in between mercy and grace. And that is the place where we're called to live, where we're called to act, where we're called to surrender. 
Jesus longs to see you prosper in every area of your life. Do you need increased health, wholeness, and freedom? Are you hitting walls when you try to pursue it? I've got a great resource for you, Healing Rain from author and international speaker Sue Detweiler, full of incredible testimonies, discussion questions, and prayers. This biblical guide points you to the words, actions, and miracles of Jesus. You will be empowered to trust His presence so you can overcome trauma and destructive thoughts, open your heart to spiritual encounters with Him, and receive the power of His blood to heal every area of your life. And just for being a Revealing Jesus listener, you get 40% off and free shipping on Healing Rain at bakerbookhouse.com using the promo code REVEALINGJESUS. Pick up a copy today and be on your way to life and life more abundantly. Just head to the link in the show notes. I love that. And if you go back to that scripture where Satan was tempting Jesus, the one phrase that he removed from the father's statement that he had spoken over Jesus was beloved. The father says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And Satan removes, if you are the son of God, he removes the word beloved. And, you know, I've found in my personal walk and I've seen it in many walks of others, Satan likes to remove that word beloved. Because if we don't know how beloved we are, it's hard to come before the throne of grace and expect mercy. And I would say the accuser, these are Jesus's words, not mine, just for the record, because people are going to hear me say this and be like, wait, what? Like, go read Matthew 23. But there's a reason why Jesus would say, like, y'all are of your father, the Satan. Y'all are of the devil to these religious leaders. And what he was saying to them is saying, you're operating within a system of accusation. Yes. And... What makes prayer so difficult for so many people is it's still infected by that system of accusation. And if you look at it, even the moment in John 4, where you have the Samaritan woman, and this is a woman who's had five husbands, living with a man who's not her husband. She's an outcast, even in Samaria, she's an outcast. And Jesus starts talking with her and she realizes that he's a holy man, like this is someone special. And she tries to engage him in a religious conversation. She's like, so you know, where should we worship? This mountain or that mountain? And I love how he disarms the strength of religiosity. He says, the time is coming and is even now where true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. In other words, no one's going to be able to set the terms mm-hmm. of where and how you worship. Because the big idea, and we read this in places like 1 Corinthians 3 and 1 Corinthians 6 and 2 Corinthians 6, is that we would become God's temple, the microcosm where heaven touches earth, that God would make us his home. The promise of Emmanuel is so much nearer, dearer than we ever thought possible. It was a wild notion to them at that time that God would come and dwell in us. Like that was radical. For a first century Jew, the idea of us becoming the temple of God would have been incredibly radical. And so Paul, when he <laughs> writes those things, it's very much that this changes everything moment. But with this idea of prayer, there's so much accusation around it. And that's wh- why so many of us, why we struggle to connect with God through prayer, because we don't believe that we are, as you said, we don't believe we are the beloved sons of God. And that's why in the fourth chapter of this book, the chapter titles, 
who do you pray to? Like, who do we pray to? Like really taking the time to think about who's on the other side of our prayers. How does this God, how does this deity, how does this person, how does this father, whoever that person is, where did the image come from? How was that formed? How has that been reinforced in your life? What you learned, what you've experienced, what you've seen. And because if we get God wrong, and if we get how God engages with us wrong, that in a sense gives way to every lesser evil. Mm-hmm. That's essentially what tells us that. He said, a low view of God is the cause of a hundred lesser evils among us. Mm-hmm. And we've preached a very low view of God that has caused a lot of us to withdraw from the goodness and the faithfulness and the power of God to reach us in our prayers and our everyday life. Mm, that's so good, Addison. That is so good because, you know, I often tell people our first repentance is repentance about who we think God is. Mm-hmm. And if we yes. see him as this evil, you know, or judgmental father who's always extracting from us and we never measure up, it keeps us from coming boldly to that throne of grace. But we must have a fundamental understanding of the gospel and the new covenant and what Jesus has done for us. Because if we do, then we can come boldly before the throne. Because the Bible actually says is that the accuser of the brethren has been cast down. Those of us who are in Christ, there's now therefore no condemnation to us. And we can boldly come before the Father, not because of us, but because of the perfect work of Jesus. And when the Father sees us, he sees the beloved Son in us. When we come with the name of Jesus, we come bringing all of the attributes and the fragrances and the beauty of Jesus. We come bringing all the obedience and the kindness, just everything that Jesus is. And that's who's on the other end of our prayers. And you said something really powerful in your book. You talked about unanswered prayers. And I want to talk about that for a little bit because I know that's a place where the enemy likes to say, see, your prayers aren't being answered. God's not hearing you. There's no point in it. He's not pleased with you. When the truth is, is that God is seeing us exactly how he sees Christ. Can you talk about unanswered prayers for a minute? Yeah, absolutely. And I share in chapter two of his book, I share a few different stories of unanswered prayers in the book, but in chapter two, I spent a good amount of time and how that can often be connected to our journey through the canyon. It's this idea of I prayed, I quote unquote, checked the boxes, but it seems like God is checked out mm-hmm. and God doesn't want to engage with my request, doesn't want to engage with me. So either one, God does not have the power to do anything about my situation. And so what's the point of praying to someone who's not able to do anything about my situation? Mm-hmm. Or two, I am somehow disqualified from being a recipient of God's power and of God's mm-hmm. favor and God's goodness, right? Those are really two yeah. big takeaways from unanswered prayers. So when we look at prayer, and this is difficult for us to come to terms with, but we're talking about something that is so powerful that God has to withhold the right uh, to answer prayers the way we think they should be answered because it's so powerful. In our limited understanding, we cannot come to terms with the of God's goodness, his faithfulness, his plans. And we are bound to the challenges and the frustrations that come with time 
when the truth is that God is forging something internal in us that certainly invades time, but also transcends time. And there's this, I think, incredibly profound statement that Jesus makes, and both Matthew and Luke capture, where Jesus says, is it you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask him or give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him, depending on whose account you read. And this is following a statement where Jesus says, look, if you ask for bread, even you who are evil fathers, if your son asks for bread, you're not going to give him a stone. We say, look, if your heavenly father, if you're evil and know how to give good gifts, how much more your heavenly father? And so I have to ask myself, okay, God, if that's true, then the reverse also has to be true. There may be times when I'm asking for a stone, but I think I'm asking for bread. I'm asking for a serpent, but I think I'm asking for a fish. And you and your faithfulness and your goodness, you withhold the right to grant that request because ultimately you as a good father, you only want to give us what's best for us. And that leads us to this place of trust. And that's why I tell people when it comes to praying, there's really three things when it comes to asking God, when it comes to answered prayer versus unanswered prayer, there's really three things that we need to bring into our prayers. And, and this is a, embodied in Jesus' experience in the garden, which was his moment of great need where he has blood seeping from his pores. He models three mm -hmm. things in prayer. Number one, he's specific. He says, Father, if there's any way that this cup can pass, please let it pass. He wasn't vague. See, vague prayers don't do anything for anyone because they leave us in this place of ambiguity. God's not afraid of your prayers being specific. In fact, God likes us praying specific prayers because specific prayers help us become aware of how God responds to our prayers, even when, and especially when God doesn't respond the way we expected him to respond. So that leads us down a process that moves us beyond this transactional view of God, which is, I pray God answered prayer works. It leads us into this place of transformation. We have to wrestle with the heart of God and how that means or what that means in our disappointment. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's the first element, specific. The second element is he was steadfast. He prayed multiple times. He asked those closest to him to pray with him. He's like, guys, mm -hmm. please contend with me. This is my moment of need. And there's something about praying with steadfastness that prepares us to receive, to value, to understand what it is that we're being given through prayer. Mm -hmm. And the third thing is he was surrendered. So he was specific, he was steadfast, and he was surrendered. That not my will, but yours be done. And oftentimes, Christina, we want to swing a pendulum. We want to pray these very vague prayers where like, we wouldn't even know if God answered them. Or we want to go to God in prayer and essentially give him his marching orders. And if he doesn't do exactly what we asked him to do when we asked him to do it, then prayer doesn't work. And the reality is we have to move into the tension. Everything meaningful happens in the tension. The tension of praying specific prayers that help us see how God responds to our prayers, even when a prayer goes, quote unquote, unanswered. <laughs> and also surrendered prayers where we're ultimately saying, God, not my will, but yours be done. But let me share this with everyone. I want to make a statement. There's no prayer that goes unheard. There may be prayers that go unanswered, but there's no prayer that goes unheard by God. Every prayer, when it leaves our mouths, I believe finds a place of rest in the Father's heart until its time has come. 
until its time has come or to it matures into an understanding of the heart of what we were praying for initially. I fully believe that. And there was a theologian who made the statement. He said, when we are one with life, we're one with God. And this is very much aligned with what Jesus said. No prayer can be denied. Mm-hmm. And it's that journey of transformation. Again, prayer is not about transaction. It's about transformation. Mm-hmm. It's that journey of transformation that leads us into a oneness with God in prayer so that the prayers that we pray elevate us and bring us into this place of connection with him. And so the challenge is, Christina, prayer is so much more robust than us asking God for things, but asking God for things is certainly a big part of prayer. Mm-hmm. Prayer wants to move into every part of our lives. So much of the therapeutic and the therapeutic challenges that we have, I believe, can be traced to the disintegration that comes from not being prayerful people, not being people who live in harmony, this integrated reality with God. And that's why Jesus in John 16 tells him, he says, look, I'm telling you the truth. It's better for you that I go away because if I go away, my spirit will come. And I've given you a great example. You've seen things modeled in me, but when my spirit comes, those things you can't bear, you can't grasp right now, my spirit's going to come and you are going to be enlightened by my spirit. And those things that were external now and are external now are going to become internal then. They're going to become a part of who you are. And you are going to experience this integration, this oneness that I share with the Father and that I share through the Spirit. And that's what he's praying in John 17, the high priestly prayer, is this prayer of oneness that comes through a connectedness that's only made possible by the Spirit that leads us into a connectedness of purpose and a relationship and community, all those things with others. But all of that is only made possible by this way of surrender, this life of surrender that exceeds just this religious duty and these transactional moments of prayer. Mm -hmm. That's so good. And if I could just add to that real quickly, the people can only go as far as their leaders are willing to go. And so if our Christian leaders are not bringing people into that authentic, real relationship with Jesus, they're not going to experience and believe for anything further. And so I'm so excited about what God is doing with this generation right now. He's raising real, authentic Christian ministers and leaders who've walked through the fire with God, who can say, this is who Jesus really is. This is what you can have with him. And it's not this religious duty that we're inviting people into. It's truly the good news. And I'm so excited about that, Addison. Is there anything burning on your heart that you'd like to share directly with our listeners today? Yeah, Christina, thank you. I would love to share. For those of you who are listening to this, you're like, Addison, I've tried to connect with God. I have felt abandoned by him. I have felt passed over. There's too much disappointment there. There's too much confusion there. I can't do it. I would tell you, bring those messy words to God. Like having words with God isn't about getting all the words right. 
It's about being honest and real with God. That's what we discover, just how real he is. If you look at Psalm 142, David says, I pour out my complaints before you, God. Jesus on the cross cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He gave us a model for how we're to engage with God in those moments of disconnect. But then later in Psalm 22, which is the Psalm that Jesus is quoting on the cross, he said that you do not abandon the afflicted in their affliction, nor do you turn your face away from them. (laughs) And I just want y'all to know, like the silence that you have felt, it's not rejection. It's actually an invitation into a fresh way of knowing God and being known by him. If God would have met you through the old mechanisms, then those old mechanisms would have had a glory. They would have been viewed as something that is good and something we can return to. And I believe that God is calling us to a more intimate, more personal relationship with him, connection with him, because we need that our world. And I'm not just talking about the greater world. I'm talking about your world, your family, your community, your church, whatever it is, your neighborhood. We need to be people who experience that for ourselves so we can share that. Because right now, the accuser has so many people's ears and so much of what is happening, the rhetoric and the style and the form of messaging in our world, both quote unquote in the church and outside the church is dictated by the tone and the tenor of the accuser. And if we're going to be people who don't look for validation by invalidating others, if we're going to be people who can validate others because our validation is found in the belovedness and the goodness that the Father speaks over us, then we have got to be people who let go of the transactional religious idea of prayer, which is where we get real with God and where God becomes real with us so we can encounter God in a way that becomes real both to us and to this world. Yeah. Oh, good. Preach it, Addison. <laughs> I am rather, Christina, I am rather passionate about this. And I really feel like this is life's work. After finishing the book, the editor, she reached out to me and she just said, hey, so people are going to want to continue to journey with you in this. She's like, this is more than just a book. He said, I know you're private. I know you're a bit reclusive. She's like, but can we please like figure out what those next steps look like? And I decided, I was like, okay, I actually put my email in the book and I just said, hey, let's continue this conversation and I'm going to be prying into what this means. But I've started doing something on Sunday nights where I send an email on prayer as a way of life. And nearly 10,000 people have said like, hey, I want prayer to become a way of life. Like, I want to know what this is. And so I'm sharing thoughts on Sunday nights that we can take into the week ahead. And I'm doing that through wordswithgod.org. So if this is something I was speaking to y'all, like I'm telling you, the book, it was a gift to me. I feel like I was the first one to get to read it. If I believe that it's not going to give you cliches. It's not going to give you formulas. It's going to speak to the heart of your longing and going to speak to the heart of what God created you for. And then even beyond that, wordswithgod.org, which is going to be a place of ongoing connection and conversation or what it means to be prayerful people. Hey, I love that, Addison. Will you pray for our listeners before we go? Wherever they're at on their journey, would you pray for them? Absolutely. Father, I thank you that you have given us the right to be your sons and daughters. 
that's not something that we have earned. That's something that we receive from your covenant faithfulness, from your righteousness. It's an extension of your righteousness, and it's an extension of the righteousness revealed in the person and the work of Jesus. His righteousness is the banner over our lives. And so, Father, I pray that there would be a rest in your righteousness, that we would not be people who strive to do things that we have no business doing in our own strength and our own power. I ask that we'd be people who rest in your righteousness, your goodness, your faithfulness. And from that place, find the grace to do the things that we never thought that we could do. Find the grace to become the people that we never thought we could become. But in those moments of transformation, we'll be able to look back and say, only God, this was not a byproduct. Only God, you are the one who even gives your beloved the will to do your will. And so, Father, I ask for the will to do your will. I ask for the strength to stand in the face of persecution, adversity, confusion, disorientation. I ask for the grace to love and extend your love, the embodiments of your love in a world that is very confused about what it is to be loved and what it is to be people of love. And God, I ask that we would be ultimately be people who reflect your holiness, your otherness, your grace, not in a way that's cheap moralism, but in a way that reflects your design for humanity and how that is a reflection of who you are as God and who you have called us to grow into. Holy Spirit, I pray that your power, that your presence and your faithfulness and your grace would be our strength as we move into this day and throughout this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Addison. Thank you for that powerful prayer and for being here with me today. I so appreciate it. Christina, it was an honor and a joy. And thank you so much for what you're doing. And please keep up the good work. Thank you, my friend. Thank you. Well, I hope and I pray today's episode has blessed you. I will have links from today's episode in the show notes on cpnshows.com under Revealing Jesus with Christina Prayer or wherever you get your podcasts. There you'll find additional resources to connect with us and our special guest, Addison Revere. Until next week, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of Jesus. God bless. Thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode of Revealing Jesus with Christina Pereira. I hope today's episode has blessed you. Please subscribe, share it with your friends, and don't forget to sign up for our ministry mailing list for more encouraging content about our beautiful Savior, Jesus. Just text JESUS to 1-833-815-7778. That's 1-833-815-7778. 7778. And of course, it's your turn now to join the conversation. Send me your burning questions, leaders you would like to hear from in the body of Christ, your testimonies, and more. Just click join the conversation in the show notes. And for more information about our ministry, visit us at ChristinaPereira.org. Until next week, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of Jesus. God bless.